Hello, Michelle Laurie here. It's no secret that Australia's property market is out of control these days, but I, for one, can't seem to stop following along. I've become a bit obsessed with it, to be honest. What's up, what's down, and who on earth is paying those prices for those houses? So I want to personally recommend a podcast for you. It's called Real Property. It'll keep you across the latest information on the Australian property market in a clear and easy-to-digest way. Real Property, building a community of more informed property buyers. Take a listen wherever you get your podcasts. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. The producers of this podcast recognize the traditional owners of the land on which it's recorded. They pay respect to the Aboriginal elders past, present and those emerging. Men of my youth, and I was a you know, young teenager and young woman in the 70s, were obsessed with cars, the Monaro, Ford or Holden. Something about speed and power. And it was, it was something I think to do with proving their courage. And it was pulsing with sexuality. It was pulsing with this desire, you know, spraying the champagne. I mean, for goodness sake, the spraying of the champagne. Could you get a more obvious phallic symbol if you tried? It was deeply unsubtle. Jane Caro is one of Australia's most dynamic and sought-after public speakers. She's also a writer, a lecturer, an all-round interesting thinker, called upon to cast her feminist lens across all manner of contemporary conundra. But as you'll learn today, there was a time in Jane's life when such a confident persona would have been unthinkable. I'm Michelle Laurie and this is Calm Your Farm. Tips and tricks for taking care of you from the unlikeliest of gurus. It's hard to imagine Jane Caro as ever second-guessing herself, but settle in, because she's about to take us on one hell of a ride. I had a florid anxiety neurosis in my 20s, which started when I left school, so I was before I was 18. I went on a trip with some girlfriends around Australia. This would be 1974, early 75. And I became unbelievably and very drearily homesick. I must have been such a pain in the ass to go away with. I just couldn't get myself out of it. And I began to feel like there was something wrong with me, that I was weak, that I, you know, couldn't reach independence, that I wasn't capable of being an adult. You know, all my friends were desperate to get away from their parents. I was terrified. That started me thinking that, Maybe I wasn't as capable as other people. But then I met the guy who's I'm now married to and went to uni, which I enjoyed, and that all fell away. And I thought, oh, I got through that. And then towards the end of 
university, I had an nervous breakdown. It just hit me like a ton of bricks and I found myself hardly able to function. I had terrible pins and needles in all my extremities, my wrists, my hands, my feet, my ankles. I felt absolutely miserable all the time and anxious, but I didn't know why, didn't know what about. There was nothing that I could put a finger on. It was just this kind of um, floating dread. And then while I was in the group of that, I developed a form of OCD, which is um, I never had the compulsions, like I didn't have to wash my hands a million times or check the locks or anything like that, but I would have this rumination, these uh, intrusive thoughts that just came all the time. And in my case, they were thoughts that any minute now, like literally any minute now, I would lose control and I would do something terrible. So driving a car was quite difficult. You know, if I drove past a pedestrian, I would get panicky. If I was on the train station, I would worry that I was going to shove the person in front of me in front of the train. That sounds pathological. I've since investigated it. And um, the defining characteristic of this particular (laughs) obsessive thing is that people never do anything. It's the thinking that they're, they're punishing themselves, nobody else. But this I mean, I really thought I'm going crazy. They're going to have to lock me up. I'm a really uh, defective person is the feeling I had about myself. Externally, I'm functioning fine. Externally, I'm passing my uni exams. Externally, I'm getting a job. Externally, I've got a good relationship with my partner. I've got friends. You know, I look fine. Inside, I'm an absolutely hopeless mess. I mean, I would do things like sit in important meetings when I got a job and I'd have this sort of feeling like any minute now I'm going to yell out, Mind you, that would have been funny and probably absolutely the right thing to do. I never did it. But always this awful kind of feeling, any minute now, any minute now, any minute now, I'm going to reveal the really terrible person that I actually am. So you can imagine it was not a fun place to live. And that lasted really for about a decade. And one of the things, one of the gifts it gave me, and it gave me many gifts, is that it forced me, because it was so florid and dramatic, I mean, being me, it probably had to be florid and dramatic. It forced me to go and seek help. So I had to go go and find people to help me. And I went to a variety of different people, different professionals, psychiatrists, psychologists, counsellors, all of whom helped me in some ways, none of whom cured me of the OCD, but all of whom who taught me things. So that was really useful. I learned a great deal that I would never have learned if I hadn't had that mental health issue. Because it makes you ask, who am I? What am I about? Why am I like this? And that was a huge learning curve for me and incredibly important. The most important person was a counsellor I went to, who's now a very close friend of mine, who really taught me an enormous... She sort of reparented me and, and reframed things and helped me to lose my... The way I beat myself up all the time. She would always reframe things. So I remember once in particular... I said something about, oh, I'm always overreacting. And she said, are you? Why do you say you're overreacting? You know, because people say to me, oh, you're overreacting. And she said, oh, that's interesting. So what are they saying to you when they tell you that you're overreacting? Who decides how much reaction is enough and how much is too much and how much is too little? Who made them God that they get to decide what exactly the right level of reaction is? And that's when I started to realise that it was always men who were telling me that I was overreacting and over-emotional. And I started to think my feminism kicked in and I thought, she's right. 
Fuck that for a joke. They're not God. They don't get to tell me that my reactions are too big. I'm allowed to have my reactions, however big or small they might be. And now no one even tries to tell me I'm overreacting because if they do, they immediately get a lecture on, oh, and can you tell me exactly how much reaction would be acceptable in this set of circumstances? And where it is you got your degree or your qualification in deciding how much reaction is acceptable. I didn't know you were that person. The arrogance of it and the way I just accepted it. I accepted it as a judgment on me that was reasonable and that I should take on board. She'd do things like that. She'd reframe it. It was incredibly empowering and and liberating in lots of ways, but I still had the neurosis. And then I got pregnant and my first daughter was born prematurely, just went into a sort of midway nursery. And unfortunately in that nursery, she caught a thing called RSV positive bronchiolitis, which is still the biggest killer of babies under one. It's particularly dangerous for premature babies. I had a home for a couple of nights and I realised, my husband and I realised that she was sick and we brought her into Camperdown Children's Hospital and they immediately admitted her. She just got really, really sick and to the point where she stopped breathing in my arms. While I was trying to breastfeed her, went blue. They had to hit the you know, emergency button and they took her out of my hands. And I heard the charge sister saying she had poly over her hand and I could hear her hitting her on the back going, come on, come on, come on. And I remembered that when my friend's baby had been born with a tube around the neck, she told me about how they tried to get her to breathe. They did thankfully manage to do that and saying, come on, come on come on. So I realized what had happened and it happened three times. So they get a breathing and then I'd hear it again. And then they get a breather and I hear it again. I remember when I realized what was happening, I, I just had these instincts and because I've been to so many counselors and psychologists and things, I thought, don't fight your instincts, just follow them. So I felt like it was unsafe to sit on the chair. And so I sat on the floor. Then I felt like it was unsafe to sit on the floor. I needed something behind me. I needed like to be in a corner and there was a pot plant and I got in this corner between the pot plant and the wall. It was weird. It was like an animal needing to feel protected. And I thought, no, this is what you need to do. Don't worry about your dignity. Do what you need to do. And I remember my husband arriving in the middle of all this crisis and he said to me, come out, come out. I said, I don't want to come out. And he said, come out for me. So I came out. Anyway, she got the last available child's intensive care bed in New South Wales that night as officially the sickest baby in the state. And I thought, really thought, well, she's going to die. She was in intensive care, intubated, the full bed. I knew the thing to do was reach out for help. When you're in trouble, ask for help. That was another thing I learned. I'd been doing pregnancy exercise class, a wonderful woman called Juju Sundin. And I rang her and she said, right, ring my mate, Peter Barr. He's a doctor at the Children's Hospital, but he's also a grief counsellor. So I rang him and he said, I'll meet you in the coffee shop in five minutes. And um, I walked in and he said three sentences to me. He just walked straight up to me, didn't even introduce himself. He said, there's nothing special about you and there's nothing special about Polly, my daughter. Terrible things can happen and they can happen to anyone. Safety is an illusion. Danger is reality. Now, that sounds incredibly brutal. How can you say that to a young mother who's 30 years old, first child who's nearly died, may yet die, you know, blah, blah, blah. But yet it was like bricks were falling off my shoulders. First of all, he was completely honest with me, and that's what I wanted. I didn't want soft soaping. And he was also telling me 
that I had done nothing wrong, I hadn't caused it, I couldn't solve it, I was out of control. And that was the key in the end. Those three sentences started to give me the key, which I slowly unraveled and realised that what I had been doing, what my anxiety was about, was really about trying to control the uncontrollable, trying to stay safe when that's an impossible goal. And I think to some extent our entire society is caught up in that anxiety neurosis now of trying to control the uncontrollable, trying to keep the bad things from happening, but we're not doing it in the right way, we're doing it in the wrong way. So we're trying to pretend they don't exist instead of actually turning and doing the things we know we can do that would fix them. And slowly I realised that I wasn't that powerful. I couldn't control the uncontrollable. I could control my reaction to things. I could... With my children, for example, I stopped trying to keep them totally free of danger. I thought, you minimise the danger if you can, but also you look at it like if my daughter wanted to go walk on a narrow wall when she was quite little and I'd hold her hand. And, you know, my attitude was always is if there's a 5% chance she might fall off and hurt herself and a 95% chance she'll have fun, I'll go with the 95%. Just without even really noticing it, my anxiety dwindled. It didn't disappear overnight. It was like a magic wand. It just dwindled and dwindled and dwindled until I just didn't have it anymore. And in fact, I think some people might say these days, I may have overcorrected. I am so totally not anxious. And it's because I realised that safety is an illusion and a false goal. You don't try to be safe. You don't try to avoid the things that frighten you. In fact, If something frightens me now, I always think to myself, "Okay, that's a really good reason to do it. For more tips on taking care of you from the unlikeliest of gurus, including recipes for relaxing body products you can make at home, things to read and watch instead of scrolling through your phone, cheap, cheerful and calming gift ideas, go to calmyourfarm.com.au. We'd love to hear your ideas too. This has been another Smartfella production in conjunction with the Acast Creator Network. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. 
I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. 